Welcome to the Women on the Wall Communication Team Conference Call, and I welcome you all on the call tonight. It's great to see the computer screen again this week. There's new folks on the line, which is encouraging because the network is building. Anita Hogue is on the line now with us. From your story in understanding the type of assessments and the behavioral modification that they're doing with these assessments, that's part and parcel for why they are collecting all this data and and why all these grants are coming in to coordinate all of this. So, Anita, we've got a lot of folks on the line tonight. Some people are, are completely new to this battle and just just starting to dig into it, and so I want to give you a moment to just introduce yourself and give people a little background and exactly what brought you to this battle, and then we'll dive into the research and the tracking that you're doing right now, especially as it pertains to the the reauthorization of ESEA. So just take a little moment, Anita, to introduce yourself and give some folks some background about you. Okay. Um, first of all, thanks for asking me to be on tonight. I'm a parent who had, my son had come home from school and said he had taken a very unusual test. He was a, a great achiever and um, he said you couldn't answer the questions. And so I asked him what type of question it was and he said, um, when they brought everyone down to the assembly, and this was in the eighth grade, and they and the principal said, "This is the te- this is a stupid test that the state gives, and please answer honestly." And the example was, if you saw an old lady standing on the side of the street, what would you do? A push her in the street, B throw rocks at her, etc. So I had asked to see the test uh, with my superintendent. And I became very alarmed as to what was really being collected. Why? The, the test was asking these kind of questions. To make a long story short, I was denied access. I filed a federal complaint against my local district in the state because it was state-administered, and uh, there was a four-year journey um, in which um, the Pennsylvania Department of Ed had to withdraw the test. The test had over 300 questions on attitudes, values, opinions, and beliefs, 30 questions in math, and 30 questions in reading analogies. So this is where I began. It's just, you know, parent and, um, you know, thinking I was very um, involved with my kids' education, and little did I know that um, all of this was going on, and I felt very betrayed. What really made me jump into this much more. I had freedom of information in my own federal complaints, and I received everything that the state had supplied in their defense. And I had gotten the evaluation of the test, which was purely psychological. It's a very scientific um, behavior modification type of a program where they ask kids these questions by reward and punishment. It's all geared toward B.S. Skinner operant conditioning and total behavior modification. And when I saw this, I and I saw the scoring, 
And yes, the government is scoring the attitudes and values of our children. Then I began to ask what they were doing with the data, who had access to it, where it was going. So that's how I got involved with the data tracking also. So this is how I got involved and got involved with a lot of different researchers across the country. And um, a book was written about my journey called Educating for the New World Order, which I was main researcher and subject of the book. And from all of that experience, I had been asked to do um, several testimonies, expert testimonies, which, you know, um, just very much involved. Um, but I'm going to tell you about one that was probably, probably the most important because I'm going to relate it to what's going on in Senate Bill 1177. I was an expert witness to the Department of Interior National Infrastructure Health and Education Data Security Hearings. And this was on December 8, 1994, and I presented a paper that was, uh, the title of it was Exposing the Medicalization of Schools. It was how Medicaid would become the financial vehicle that would mandate and remediate mental health outcomes. Um, the report explained how schools would be required to obtain a partial hospitalization license to bill for Medicaid through mental health wraparound services at school with the identification and redefinition of disabilities for all children who would be at risk. Um, the whole idea was that the, um, the Department of Ed would be using Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and IDEA, which is the Individual Disabilities Education Act for special ed to sustain and implement the agenda. And Ira Magaziner, who was um, the main architect of Hillary Care, and this is what the hearings were against, um, his quote would, was that Medicaid would merge into the main health care system. So, you know, a lot of people would say, well, gee, what does that have to do with education? And that's exactly what I would like to talk about today was um, what is in that piece of legislation, why it is there, why these things have to happen in order to move toward a system where the schools become a medical model. And when you think of it in those terms, it becomes to be more understanding of what has happened and what needs to happen in the future for the federal government to implement this agenda to medicalize our schools, our neighborhood schools. So that's where I'd like to start. <laughs> so that's that's great. And and just so people, because we do have some new folks on the line, I want to explain to them that this bill that you're talking about, the Student Success Act, is the House version of the reauthorization of ESEA, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which was originally passed in 1965 that gave federal dollars, Title I federal dollars, to children who were economically disadvantaged. And so I just want to give folks that background. Am I correct on that, Anita? And so this bill that you're talking to about tonight 
the Student Success Act is the House version, and then there is also the Senate version, the ECAA, the Every Child Achieves Act. And, and both versions, the Senate version and the House version, have both passed, the Senate and the House, and now they're in committee. And so they're merging the two bills, and then we will have one opportunity to stop it when they vote, when the, our House and Senate vote again. And if they vote for it again, then it will go to Obama for a signature. Am I correct on all of that? Correct. You, you are okay. absolutely correct. Alice, okay. let me add, let me add one thing, uh, for the new listeners especially. Both in the Student Success Act and the Every Child Achieves Act, every bit of the workforce wording, uh, has been left in. So, uh, the, the top, the part we were talking about as far as the career tech and the career track and the career pathways and the workforce, uh, data mining, that's all going to be interwoven so that between whatever version comes out for the K through 12 system, when it, um, uh, when the higher Education Act is also reauthorized. There's going to be a streamlined effort or a bridge, if you will. So that's why the workforce language is important, not just from the post-secondary act, but from that K-12 act as well. Correct. Right. Let me also point out that both H.R. 5, which is the House bill, and Senate Bill 1177, which is the Senate bill, is not the reauthorization of No Child Left Behind. It is the direct reauthorization of ESA. Now, the first two that came out were definitely the reauthorizations of No Child Left Behind, but when they were rewritten, they were totally rewritten to actually reauthorize the original ESA, which was the Johnson 1965 um, Title I in order to help poor children learn to read. Okay, so right. this basically is a total revamping of mm -hmm. the original bill. So uh, I want to clarify that because some people still refer to it as the reauthorization of No Child Left Behind, and that is is not true. So we have to move forward. I'm so forward glad you said that, Anita. Thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Good. That's, I mean, I, I was and, one of those people. I didn't understand that. So that's great. Thank you for that clarification. Yes. And definitely the workforce skills, the uh, industry clusters, uh, the uh -huh. career pathways are all definitely incorporated into those bills. Now, I will uh -huh. say that from the original bills that were written, Senate Bill 1177 is much more explicit. I mean to um, very defined detail. The whole entire bill is about mental health the whole entire uh -huh. bill. H.R. Uh -huh. 5 has actually been scrubbed a, a good bit of what was in the original bill because it was very explicit also. So it defined a lot of the uh, behavior modification that is going to be used in the future and is being used right now. But um, with the reconciliation of both bills, I believe that both sides are going to get exactly what is in both bills. I think the compromise will, one will just be added to the other so that it is a huge bill, probably mm -hmm. going beyond 1,400 pages. 
And of course, the Senate bill is over a thousand pages now. And I believe the the House bill is like a 600 and some page or something like that. And I have Mm -hmm. read both bills. And um, what I'd like to give people an overview also of why different things had to happen. You know, when I say this is a mental health bill, what do I mean by that? Or, you know, if I'm saying that, um, you know, one bill or the other bill, you know, know, there's going to be this compromise, there are certain things that have to happen in order to move toward this medical model. And I'm going to refer to it as this medical model because that's what is in both bills. Both bills are extremely, um, I'm going to say descriptive as far as what is the plan for the future of your children. But there was an initiative that really laid out the plan for this under President Obama. And it was called the Neighborhood Revitalization Initiative. And you can Google that. And what will come up is this initiative that said that he was going to uh, identify five areas of change. And he called it place-based community. So the whole idea is going into your community and creating the change that would be necessary. And there were five areas. Uh, One area was HUD, um, which would be in housing. And he actually referred to that as choice neighborhoods. And the second one was promise neighborhoods. And this was an initiative that was started in Harlem Children's Zone originally. It was um, totally funded by Obamacare. But this was a system that was set up in the school to have what they called comprehensive continuum of education family and community supports where the school would be the hub of the community. And this is where they explain completely that your school was going to be or are going to um, create these womb-to-tomb services from actually prenatal all the way through retirement. And this is what the um, neighborhood promise, I'm sorry, promise neighborhoods were going to be. The third one was Burn Criminal Justice Innovations from the Department of Justice. This was totally uh, zeroing in on the civil rights. Okay, so if anything was going on and it wasn't going to be equitable, then there would be civil rights uh, lawsuits that would be thrown into the mix to create the change that was needed to create equity, equity across the board. Okay, so keeping that in mind, The fourth thing was community health centers. And with community health centers, that meant preventive, primary care, um, medically, quote-unquote, underserved, urban, rural, everything, health centers for everyone. And that, again, was room to to workplace. And then um, the last one, and the really very, very important, was the Behavioral Health Community Initiative. And this was through an organization within HHS that was called, I think, I believe they call it SAMHSA, uh, which is Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So when I looked at this initiative, it really explains why different things have happened. Some of you may have heard about this race database that President Obama has initiated. 
where he is um, going into every neighborhood and identifying neighborhoods across the country with his database and with his data collection and identifying any neighborhood that has over 50% white people living in it. Okay, and this is what it says outright. So what he plans to do is to create equity. They will use the Department of Justice and they will create these lawsuits that would either force you to annex areas around so that your neighborhood is actually annexed toward one of the major cities, which would be part of the regionalization that is uh, being pushed with the sustainability in the UN. Okay, but basically what that also meant, if we're going to bring 50% more minorities, illegals, into your neighborhoods, that creates the change in your tax base. It also creates the change in your school. That now creates your school as a school-wide program under Title I. When that happens, that means when your school is identified as a school-wide Title I program, that means every child in your school is at risk under the education regulations. So this was why when you're looking at the total program, then you begin to understand why these things are happening and why the change is taking place. So then you have the community health centers and you also have the behavioral health. So doing the research in, in each of those areas, then it, it gives you understanding why <clears throat> in Senate Bill 1177 you have all of this information that is jam-packed into this bill that is nothing but mental health. So when I say that, um, for instance, and I do have a paper out that's called Just Page Numbers. Um, I've done this in the past, and I think p perhaps Alice has that and, and perhaps Lynn has this, that also. But what it does is shows you how invasive the mental health uh, agenda is. But the key, uh, like on page 43, it it mandates that we produce an individual, interpretive, descriptive, diagnostic report on individual children. Okay, so we're not talking about reading a math now. Now we're talking about an interpretive diagnostic report that will be disaggregated, and that's on page 44, by race, ethnicity, economically disadvantaged, disabilities, English proficient, gender, migrant. So. This connects with your HUD collection of information of how many families are race-related or if your neighborhood is 50%, 50, more than 50% white, which would create the influx of this relocation of people into your neighborhoods through HUD. And our understanding is that if your local boards, your uh, community development boards, do not initiate this 50% where they're going to have to create more housing or annex more property beyond your own little neighborhood, then the, the DOJ under civil rights will be filing suit so that you are going to be forced to do that.
Now, another thing that's absolutely throughout the bill are these, um, I've been referring to them as the psychobabble. The psychobabble um, where it's forcing psychological techniques on your children, behavior modification, is throughout. On page 70, they refer to it as multi-tiered system of supports, positive behavior intervention and supports, early intervening services, and these things will be carried out by IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is special ed. So what is happening is that your school is being identified as a school-wide under Title I. All your children become Title I children in your entire whole school. That lays the groundwork for all of these, they call them specialized instructional student supports, which um, had been changed throughout the legislation also, which calls for psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, any kind of support, psychological support that your child needs to meet these behavioral outcomes that are within Common Core. Now, you have to realize that uh, two years ago when um, Secretary Duncan and President Obama had initiated the flex waivers, which was illegal, by the way, because what they did was create a waiver for federal law. And this is why they have to pass ESA and pass it quickly, because they're doing so many things against the law that they have to make, make create, um, pass this law so that what they are doing is going to be supposedly legal, okay? So basically, over two years ago, we've initiated most of these things. We've initiated the positive behavior intervention and supports. We're training their teachers now before this legislation even passes. And it's being carried out by special education teams where they have to go through three levels of support. It's called uh, multi-tiered systems of support where everybody gets a dose of psychology, and if there are some children that are not performing and meeting the specific behavioral objectives, then those children are go to the second level. And if it's more severe than that, then those children go to the third level. And that's what was called the multi-tiered system of support or the positive behavior intervention and supports. This is throughout. These techniques are throughout this bill. Um, Another thing, uh, also on page 118, 119, the exact same wording, uh, 100, page 132 is about the school-wide program. Page 142 says specifically that if children are not meeting your state objectives, they're at risk or they may be at risk of failing. So not only can you be just at risk, but you might be at risk to also. So you have to realize that Every child is a target in order to implement this agenda. Now, within this bill also, um, I'm going to jump to the Universal Design for Learning, which is actually called Cognitive Brain Research. Well, the Cognitive Brain Research is the research that's being done that will create the techniques 
to make the child almost be forced to move toward these objectives. So all along when you were told that your child's going to have a personalized education plan or a personal education profile or an opportunity plan or a career pathway or whatever they call it, the idea is that your child will have a personal plan not to have the opportunity to expand their learning or to do the best that they can, but that they would have a plan that would be revolving around your child needing specific state and federal objectives. So it wasn't a system of opportunity. It was a closed system, and that's what Common Core is. Common Core is a closed system of education. I'm not even going to call it education. Let's call it re-education of meeting specific federal outcomes. And yes, I can say they were federal outcomes. The test that, that I filed a federal complaint against in Pennsylvania was basically the NAEP, which was the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And I have all of the criteria. For instance, when they said they were testing citizenship, they were testing the psychological notion of threshold of what point your child would change by reward and punishment. So you had to look at the criteria because they were positively and negatively scored and how they would set up the child in these little scenarios, they, and it was very scientific, they could determine at what point your child would change their behavior. Okay, so this is what the whole agenda is. It's a collection of data. So when your child is given these, these individualized plans, the diagnostic interpretive result is that they're going to look at what they call the whole child, their belief system, their attitudes, their values, and their behavior. And the whole agenda is, in the end, to control behavior. So in order to control behavior, you've got to create a conflict in what the child's belief system in which is the cognitive, and you have to create a conflict in the affective domain, which is their attitudes and values. And this is what the whole agenda is about. When they say whole child, whole school, whole community, we're talking about this new agenda of medicalization and, this, and the psychological impact of what will happen to your child to meet these objectives. Now, how, how does this bill say they're going to do this? Well, first of all, the whole idea of identifying the teachers to be retrained in this re-education is very important. And they call it a fidelity of teaching toward these, these specific objectives. So the teachers are being evaluated on how well the children test. So this is, and it's called VAM, Value Added Measurement, or a Value Added Model, where the data is collected on not only how the child is tested and how the child is reflected as how they meet the objective, but they're also monitoring the curriculum because you have to have a model curriculum, and they're also um, going to monitor the teacher evaluation and the teacher certification, and it all has to jive together. So you have to control the outcomes, which is common core, 
which what 45, 46 states, they go in and out, but basically Common Core stays intact where you only have, each state only has 15% that they can sway away from what the Common Core really is. And, and that's mainly because the data system is very exact. It's standardized. And it is the data elements within the data system are standardized across the whole entire United States. And the contracts that we had um, accessed in Pennsylvania, which state that we were a model for the, for the nation, that every child had to have a unique ID, a national ID, in order to monitor everyone in the system. But it also said that every state had to be standardized and the data elements had to be the same. That's why you could go to Oregon or you could go to Michigan or you could go to Florida and you will have the same data elements that's being collected because of the state longitudinal data systems that were being, that's, that are being implemented as we speak. And this model of this data collection says it's a womb to workforce database. And of course, our, our, our particular grants and our particular contract said that specifically, that we were a model and it was a womb-to-workplace uh, database system. So where this is going is what is called a school-based mental health counseling or school-based mental health services. And that is all on page 477, 480, and 481. So if you look um, within those page numbers, you can see that um, this is what's going to be set up in your school with these specialized instructional student support um, teams. And that's under section 1114. Throughout the whole entire legislation, they refer to section 1114. And when you go to the definition of specialized student support systems, it refers to the measure psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, anyone who is involved with these specialized techniques in special education. So these are the teams that are going to be helping to create these uh, profiles of your children, their behavioral profiles. So, um, and again, what is the name of the agenda is exactly the same that was in President Obama's neighborhood revitalization initiative, and that's on page 737 in the Senate bill called Promise Neighborhoods. And it says specifically the purpose of that part was to improve not only the academic supposedly, but developmental outcomes of children, and that they would have that, to be college and I career wanted, ready and start at birth. Yep. Yes, exactly. I wanted this, I just want to kind of connect some dots for people because in Texas they've done they've created this illusion, you know, that we don't have common core when in fact everything that you're describing is happening in real time. And there's two um, actually three school districts that I want to just point out to people because I know there's some people on this call listening to this. Um, one of them, we had this 
uh, new Texas vision that was being implemented through TASA, the Texas Association of School Administration, Administrators. And they are, are the ones that, who are implementing um, all of this digital learning and um, mandating, you know, that students use the uh, school district uh, school district owned Chromebook or, or iPad. Um, and what's interesting, and I connected the dots from your work um, in clearly understanding that um, when Obama changed the regulation on the FERPA law, that's what opened up Pandora's box in that all this data could be collected without parental consent in the name of education research by these third-party contractors. So, for instance, in my local school district, um, we have we have 20 education service centers that service our our school districts, and Region 11, which is um, in Fort Worth. Our school district has contracted with Region 11 to collect data on our students and on our teachers in order to follow the mandates that are being given by the state and federal government. Well, Region 11 has contracted with another company, a third-party company called Edgephoria, that is creating all of these um, exactly what you're talking about, Anita, where they're um, the evaluations on the teachers and then giving the teachers to tool, the tools to basically do all these formative assessments and monitoring uh, the, the behaviors of the students. So am I, is that making sense, Anita, and am I on the right track with how Absolutely. this happens? Right. Right, absolutely. Um, when we had, this is what happened whenever FERPA changed. This is when I, I totally flipped out, okay, because I knew what was going to happen. So FERPA says specifically they changed the definition of school official. And it says in, uh, I think, believe it's 3131 in the FERPA law, and it was uh, President Obama's executive order, 12866, that changed the law. So again, this is another executive order without congressional authority that had changed a congressional law that had gone through Congress and changed the criteria of protecting our children. And he, un what he said specifically, he unlocked the data. So what happens is a school official is now it could be a business, a corporation, uh, high, high, a college of higher ed or university. It could be anyone that could go into a contract, a memorandum, with your State Department of Ed that can access personally identifiable information on your children. When I learned about that, I went to Harrisburg and requested those contracts. And this is when I talk about the contracts that state that were a model for the nation and that um, we created the unique national ID. These are the contracts I'm talking about because of FERPA, okay? But FERPA also 
aligned the state longitudinal data systems in every state. Okay, so grants were given, and each state is slightly different in where they are in the data collection, but they are creating this loan-to-workplace data system. It's collecting uh, pre-K. It's, it's collecting a, an ID on your child as soon as they are born, okay, all the way through K through 12. All the colleges in higher ed were brought on like in 2009 in Pennsylvania. So what I'm telling you is that our children who are about 28 years or younger all have a unique national ID with a psychometric profile. That means not only demographics where you live, all the census data, et cetera, and perhaps your grades, they also have the attitudes, values, opinions, and beliefs of you and your family on this database. Now, something that I really want to point out about these Senate, the Senate bill and the House bill, the IES, which is the Institute for Educational Sciences, this is an arm of the National Center of Education Statistics that gave out all these state longitudinal grants. This is Big Brother. Okay, this is your data guru person, the director that is going to be your national school board. Okay, they have complete control over all the evaluations and of all the personally identifiable information. This is, this is the National Center of Education Statistics is your bugaboo, I'm going to call them, because they are the ones that have all the personal identifiable information on our children. And they are setting up the IES to legally allow them to have it and to legally codify FERPA so that they can continue to do it. 